The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. If you've ever read the New Testament, one thing you'll notice is that the New Testament writers like to quote the Old Testament a lot. And if you've ever gone back and looked up some of these Old Testament quotations in their original context, no doubt you've noticed that something seems awry. When looking at some of these Old Testament passages combined with the New Testament applications of them, things just don't seem to add up. And it starts right away. Matthew 2, 13-15, for example. Now when they had gone, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. So Joseph got up and took the child and his mother while it was still night, and they left for Egypt. He remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken of by the Lord through the prophet. Out of Egypt have I called my son. So far, so good. If you're reading just the New Testament, you'd think, well, there's obviously an Old Testament passage that predicts that the Messiah would flee to Egypt and return again to the land of Israel. As Matthew informs us, Yeshua's parents did after Herod's death. Having said that, let me ask you, has anyone actually gone back and looked up the Old Testament passage that Matthew quotes here? If you have, it's kind of astonishing. Dare I say, it's even kind of weird in the light of the way in which Matthew understands it. The passage is Hosea 11.1. And it, quite frankly, gets weirder when you read it in context, coupled with verse 2. Taken together, these two verses read as follows. When Israel was a child... I loved him, and out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. This clearly does not appear to be a forward-looking prophecy about the Messiah, but rather a look backward into Israel's history at the Exodus event. This is how Hosea's original audience would have understood it. And it's, quite frankly, how anyone would have understood it up until Matthew's rather unique take on it. So you ask yourself, what in the world is Matthew thinking here? What was he thinking when he wrote this? Well, if you're like me, quick to defend inerrancy, you might be tempted to argue, well, Hosea says, my son not my people. So it's pretty clear that Hosea had Yeshua singular in mind and not the people of Israel collectively. This seems like a logical, coherent argument. But this argument crumbles when we realize that understanding national Israel collectively as God's son in conjunction with the Exodus event would have been second nature to an ancient Israelite. 
Listen to uh, what Yahweh says back in Exodus 4, 1 through 21 through 23. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you will say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, I will kill your firstborn son. Clearly then, there's nothing unique about Hosea's identification of Israel collectively as God's son, singular, especially in conjunction with their departure from Egypt. So the usage of the term, my son, would not have caused an ancient reader to think that the prophet was speaking of anything other than ancient Israel as a nation. Furthermore, the words of verse 2, the more they called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning incense or offerings to idols. These words are clearly looking back to the faults of Israel as a nation, rather than looking forward to Christ as God's perfectly and obedient son. You simply can't get around the fact that Hosea is obviously and unequivocally looking backward into Israel's history and the original Exodus event. Nevertheless, Matthew unequivocally takes Hosea's words and applies them as a forward-looking prophecy pointing to Christ. Again, what is Matthew thinking here? What type of hermeneutic is he using? Certainly, if Matthew were alive today, he would not make a very good dispensationalist because he's clearly not interpreting the Bible literally here. And it doesn't stop there. Take, for example, Judas' betrayal of Yeshua. The New Testament repeatedly and consistently portrays this as the fulfillment of prophecy. John 13, 18. I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I have chosen, but it is that the Scripture might be fulfilled. He who eats my bread lifted up his heel against me. John 17, 12. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me. And I guarded them that none of them should perish but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. And Peter, in Acts chapter 1, Brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who would become a guide to those who arrested Jesus. In each of these passages, Judas' betrayal of Yeshua is clearly cast as the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Now, the passage to which Yeshua, Lazarus, and Peter all refer is Psalm 41.9. Yeshua quotes it verbatim, and Peter specifically attributes the passage to David. If you're looking for the Old Testament passage they're talking about, this is it. Yet, in its original context, this psalm is speaking of the treachery committed against David by his son Absalom and the sudden switch of loyalty 
from David to Absalom by David's trusted friend and counselor, Ahithophel. The background for this passage is laid out for us plain as day in 2 Samuel 15 through 18. In its original context, then, there is nothing inherently messianic about this psalm. Nothing. If anyone were to doubt this, it should be noted that there are portions of this psalm that clearly cannot be ascribed to Yeshua at all. For example, verse 4 says, Heal my soul, for I have sinned against thee. No ancient reader would read this and imagine it was talking about the sinless Messiah being betrayed by one of his disciples. No ancient reader would have understood this in terms of anything other than King David, who like all humans is a sinner, and the mutinous coup between his son and his trusted friend. Nevertheless, if we believe Yeshua, Lazarus, and Peter were in fact inspired by God, we must believe that tucked away in the words of Psalm 41.9, there's a veiled and hidden prophecy of Judas' betrayal of Yeshua, just as there is a veiled and hidden prophecy in Hosea 11 about Yeshua's parents fleeing to Egypt. We could probably go on all morning with examples such as these. Think about our own David Curtis's message at the conference back in April, restoring David's, restoring David's fallen tabernacle, Amos 9.11. If you're, a, uh, if you're an ancient person reading Amos' prophecy, you're thinking about rebuilding a fallen physical structure. But when you come to Acts chapter 15, where James actually quotes the passage, guess what? It's not about a physical structure at all. It's about the resurrected Christ and his gathering of all people, Jew and Gentile alike, unto himself. It's about God's strategy of reclaiming all the people groups of the world. It's about kickstarting the kingdom of God. But you're not going to get any of that in Amos chapter 9. This strategy is concealed and hidden in Amos, but revealed and made known in Acts chapter 15. Another really good example along these lines is Paul's usage of Hosea uh, 2.23 in Romans chapter 9. Romans 9, 24-26. Even us, whom he also called, not among, not among the Jews only, but also from among the Gentiles. As he says in Hosea, I will call those people who are not my people, my people. And her who was not my beloved, my beloved. And it shall be in the place where it is said to them, you are not my people. There they shall be called sons of the living God. In its original context, this passage in Hosea is talking about God disinheriting and then reinheriting the northern ten tribes of Israel. Paul takes this a step further and includes Gentiles in the equation. But the idea of Gentile inclusion is certainly not readily apparent in Hosea, to say the least. It's veiled, it's cryptic, it's nuanced. To be frank, without the further revelation of Romans chapter 9, it's just not there. And this shouldn't really surprise us at all, because Paul actually goes so far in Ephesians 3 as to say that the message of Gentile inclusion was in fact hidden 
in ages past. Perhaps the best example, and this is my favorite one, of the veiled, cryptic, or hidden message in the Old Testament is the New Testament usage of Psalm 8. Uh, Psalm 8, 4 through 8 says, What is man that you are mindful of him, nor the son of man that you should care for him? You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You put all things in subjection under his feet, all sheep and oxen, also all beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, and whatever passes along the paths of the sea. This passage, for all intents and purposes, is talking about mankind's dominion over the animal kingdom. There's absolutely nothing in the psalm itself to indicate otherwise. But this is not at all how the New Testament writers interpret, understand, and apply the passage. Over and over, the New Testament writers use this psalm in reference to Yeshua's victory over the powers of darkness in the unseen realm. In, uh, you find this in 1 Corinthians 15, Ephesians 1, and Hebrews chapter 2. 1 Corinthians 15, 24 through 27. The all things that are being put under his feet are all rule, power, dominion, and authority. All of his enemies, including the last enemy, death. In Ephesians 1, 19 through 22, the same thing's going on. Christ is raised from the dead and seated at God's right hand, far above all rule, power, and dominion, every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. These are the all things that are being placed under his feet. The writer to the Hebrews quotes Psalm 8, 4 through 6 verbatim, and then says that the all things that are being placed under Christ's feet are in fact in reference to the world to come. Obviously, the New Testament writers are not understanding Psalm 8 in terms of mankind's present dominion over physical animals. We can clearly see that the psalmist, oxen, sheep, and all wild beasts, have become Paul's rule, dominion, power, and authority. Now, an understanding of the ancient Near Eastern worldview kind of tips you off as to how this connection can be made. Not unlike the language of the sun, the moon, and the stars, many of the ancient gods of the other nations were in fact also represented by various animals. In ancient Egypt, for example, Horus, the son of Ra, was represented as a hawk. The underworld deity, Anubis, was represented as a jackal. Seth was represented as a composite canine animal. The Egyptians' version of chaos, Apophis, was represented as a snake or a serpent. Um, we could go on. This, this type of thing is just all over the place in the religious literature of the ancient world. Nevertheless, the language of Psalm 8 itself is phrased in such a way that it sounds like the psalmist is in fact talking about the physical animals themselves and not the deities they may have represented. And in its original context, it may have been. But tucked away in the psalm are clues to let the New Testament writers know 
that it's talking about so much more. 2,000 years later, reading the New Testament back into the Old Testament with 2020 hindsight, it's very easy not to recognize just how cryptic and how concealed these prophecies really were. When you first got saved, <clears throat> you probably already read the New Testament usage of Psalm 8 before you even went back to the Old Testament and actually read Psalm 8 for itself. I know I did. I like to say we are blinded to what was concealed because we already know what was revealed. Just because it's clear to us does not mean it was clear to those who lived before the fulfillment. From the New Testament, we know that it's the powers of darkness that are going to be put under Christ's feet. And the means by which this is going to be accomplished will be his death on the cross. Excuse me. But God's plan, as it plays out in the pages of the New Testament, was simply not readily apparent to someone who had only the Old Testament. This is why when Jesus begins to explain to, to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the hands of the elders, the chief, peace, chief priests and the scribes, and be killed and rise again on the third day, Peter exclaims, God forbid, may this never be. This shall never happen to you. Now, we look at this today and we think Peter should have known what was going to happen. He should have known what was going on. He should have read it in his Bible. We missed the point. He couldn't read it in his Bible because it wasn't spelled out. As Christians today, I think we miss the full impact of Luke 24, 44 through 45. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything that is written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their eyes to understand the Scriptures. Did you get that? Yeshua had to supernaturally open their minds in order to understand what the Old Testament was really saying about the person and work of Christ. And the only reason we get it today is because their words are recorded for us in this thing we call the New Testament. So let's not deceive ourselves into thinking we possess some superior intelligence the disciples lacked. The only reason we know what we know today is because the Lord's apostles have spelled it out for us in the pages of the New Testament after he opened their minds to understand these things. Mark obviously had his eyes open to something that wasn't so clear in the Old Testament regarding John the Baptist paving the way for all of this to happen. He starts his gospel out like this. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. This is actually considered to be a so-called problematic citation because it's essentially a conflation of three different passages which, 
in their original context, seem to have nothing to do with each other. The first line, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you, is actually from Malachi 3.1, and not Isaiah at all. And, in its original context, it's dealing with judgment on the Levites for cheating God and robbing his people. The second line, who will prepare your way, comes from Exodus 23.20. And like the Hosea passage we open with, is dealing with the original Exodus event. The third line, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight, does in fact come from Isaiah, Isaiah 40, verse 3. However, Mark's usage here would have been seen as unique and innovative to an ancient reader. When we read Isaiah 40, verse 3 today, John the Baptist seems to jump off the pages. But this is not the original context of the passage, nor is it the way in which an ancient Israelite would have understood it. This portion of Isaiah, chapters 40 to 55, is known to scholars as Second Isaiah. And it's dealing with the Babylonian exile and looks forward to the Israelites' return from captivity. Chapter 40 is actually a polemic against Babylon and its ceremonial parades, parades that depicted the triumphal entry of its gods and deities. Against this backdrop, a call goes out by the voice of one crying in the wilderness for the preparation of Yahweh's triumphant return to his people. Ricky Watts summarizes the original context of Isaiah 40, verse 3, as one coming to his people whose coming would wither the pretensions of Babylon and its gods and deities. Throughout the chapter, this messenger, whose voice is crying in the wilderness, is couched in veiled terms, as Klaus Westerman, Klaus Westerman puts it. Nevertheless, Mark obviously sees a common theme here, running through all these Old Testament passages, but it's scattered like a puzzle across the pages of the Old Testament, and it's not readily apparent unless you're reading the New Testament back into the Old. We can do that now because Mark, like the other Gospel writers, had his eyes open to understand the Scriptures. Hence, we get it, but we couldn't get it without Mark's help. Michael Heiser puts it this way, only someone who knew the outcome of the puzzle, who knew how all the elements of the messianic mosaic would come together, could make sense of the pieces. Jesus had to enable the disciples to understand what the Old Testament was simultaneously hiding and revealing. So the question becomes why? Why not just come out and say it? Why cloak the language in obscurity? Why the concealment? Well, think about it for a minute. Is it a wise military strategy to reveal your plans, purposes, and intentions to the enemy? Would you broadcast them so everyone and anyone could know what you were going to do and how you were going to do it? No. In fact, you do just the opposite. You conceal them. You hide them. And uh, ironically enough, on our way here to Virginia, um, we stopped at a rest stop or a welcome center, and there was this brochure there. It's... Uh, the National D-Day Memorial. Well, 
This is what D-Day was all about. In the months leading up to the invasion of Normandy, the Allied forces conducted a deception operation, Operation Fortitude, aimed at misleading the Germans with respect to the date and place of the invasion. In the same way, God misled the powers of darkness. Think about it. If Satan had known that Mary and Joseph would flee to Egypt with the child, he wouldn't have wasted his time having Herod kill all the newborns in Bethlehem. He would have simply intercepted the Holy Family on their way to Egypt. Likewise, if Satan had known that Yeshua's death would ensure Yahweh's victory, and Judas' betrayal of Yeshua would be the pathway to that victory, he would have never entered Judas and enticed him to betray Yeshua in the first place. And this is exactly what the Bible says as to the reason why these truths we now take for granted as almost self-evident at this point were in fact hidden in ages past. And I'm just going to go through a little bit of what David read this morning from 2 Corinthians. We, we do speak wisdom among those who are mature. A wisdom, however, not of this age or of the rulers of this age who are passing away. But we speak wisdom in a mystery. The hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. The wisdom which none of the rulers of this age had understood, has understood. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. And then it goes on, things which eye has not seen, ear has not heard, which have not entered into the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. For God revealed it to them, for to us God revealed them through his spirit. And that's the key point. I don't know if you caught that. What was hidden is now revealed. And exactly what was hidden in ages past? What was hidden is the fact that the cross itself would spell the doom for the powers who crucified Christ. The powers who engineered Christ's death actually met their own doom and their own defeat at the cross. The cross is the turning point of the ages. From this point on, everything begins to change. God's people become more than just the nation of Israel. The other gods allotted to the nations, the other nations of the world, are put under Christ's feet. And eternal life in the heavenly realm becomes a reality for all people. But it all hinges on Yeshua's crucifixion. If He doesn't go to the cross, none of this will happen. But no one was expecting these things to be accomplished through a suffering and dying Messiah. Everyone was expecting the Messiah to do things the old way, the way it was done the first time. When the Israelites occupied the land of Canaan, Baal's territory, they drove out the physical inhabitants, Baal's worshipers. So much of the Old Testament reads like a rivalry between Baal and Yahweh, with Baal constantly trying to get his territory back by infiltrating Israel's worship practices. And if you've been reading through the Bible in the one-year plan, you see it all the time, chapter after chapter, verse after verse, page after page. This time, however, 
Yahweh is not going to remove the people from the lands of the false gods. He's going to take out the false gods themselves, all of them. As Zephaniah 2.11 says, and I'm reading from the Lexham English Bible, Yahweh will be awesome against them, for he will destroy all the gods of the earth. Again, however, destroying them through a suffering and dying Messiah was something that no one saw coming. The Messiah was supposed to physically overthrow Israel's earthly oppressors. This is what they were expecting. As N.T. Wright says, a Messiah who was executed by the occupying forces was not a true Messiah. Jesus the Galilean, continues Wright, envisioned a different sort of revolution than Judas the Galilean. As Yeshua told Pilate at his trial, I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world. But my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight, that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. His servants didn't fight because it was the cross itself that would be the pivotal moment in history that would turn the tide of this age-long war. It was a different sort of revolution indeed. Um, the song Kathy sang today, and thanks to Kathy, thanks to, music, to the musicians, uh, just for a just absolutely great rendition of that song. It is one of my favorite songs of all time. Um, and I don't know if the band Petra was attuned to the Divine Council worldview or the idea of the cryptic message. But the lyrics to this song really capture exactly what was going on, just as well as, if not better than, any academic work on the subject. Uh, just go through some of them here. He came alone into the battle. He knew nobody else could face his foe. He left his throne. He left his glory. He knew nobody else could ever go. He called their bluff. He took the challenge. He came into this world to seek and to save. No one could know. No one could fathom. The way to win was only through the grave. No one could know it. No one could fathom it. Because this is precisely how Yahweh intended it to be. So, why was the message so veiled, so cryptic, so nuanced in the pages of the Old Testament? To quote Heiser again, Paul tells us why in 1 Corinthians 2. The plan for the Messiah's mission, if the plan for the Messiah's mission had been clear, the powers of darkness would have never killed Jesus. Thus, the Old Testament profile of the Messiah was deliberately veiled. If the rulers of this age had understood the plan, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Now, I did want to talk a little bit about the idea of equating the rulers of this age in this passage with the powers of darkness may seem strange to those not accustomed to the Divine Council worldview. I think it's safe to say that most modern-day Christians, pastors included, would read this passage and simply assume Paul was talking about the human, earthly rulers who had Christ nailed to the cross. But I don't believe this is the case for a couple of reasons. 
First, the rulers of this age who crucified the Lord of glory are passing away. In other words, they were currently in the process of passing away or being made powerless as Paul penned his letter to the Corinthians. In earthly terms, the human rulers responsible for nailing Yeshua to the cross would have been Herod Antipas, Caiaphas, the high priest, and of course Pontius Pilate. Herod died in 39 AD. Caiaphas and Pilate both died three years earlier, in 36 AD. Paul wrote 1 Corinthians 20 years later, sometime in the mid-50s. If Paul had human or earthly rulers in mind when he wrote this, he would be saying that Caiaphas, Herod, and Pilate were presently being destroyed as he wrote the letter. And this is just historically and factually not true. As Robert E. Moses says, the high priest, Herod, and Pilate cannot bear the weight of the title rulers of this age for... At the time of Paul's writing, these earthly rulers who were involved in Jesus' death would have already passed away. Second, there would be no need to hide the message from human or earthly rulers because, according to, according to Paul, the word of the cross is foolishness to human beings anyway. 1 Corinthians 1.18 Paul goes on to say in chapter 2, verse 14, that humans in their natural state, cannot accept or know the things of the Spirit. Basically, you need to be born again before you can even begin to understand spiritual truth. This being the case, there would be no reason to hide the message from humans since they are incapable of understanding the message to begin with. Why hide the message from people who aren't going to get the message in the first place? It would be like saying, don't let the dog know our plans. You know, it's pointless. Again, quoting Moses, hiding the message from humans is unnecessary in light of what Paul says about the spiritual transformation that is needed to understand the message and available to believers only. Third, Paul refers to Yeshua as the Lord of glory. Now you might be thinking, so what? Well, this is a very rare phrase, and it comes from 1 Enoch, the book of the Watchers. In other words, Paul's using distinctively Enochian terminology here. The fact that Paul's drawing his readers back to 1 Enoch is significant because Enoch specifically says, regarding the destroying spirits or watchers, all the mysteries have not been revealed to you. And that's 1 Enoch 16, 1 through 3. So it would seem then, Paul's updating the antiquated term watchers with Greco-Roman terminology that the, that the Corinthians would have been more familiar with. In short, Enoch's watchers have become Paul's rulers of this age. And Enoch informs us the, that, the, that Yahweh did in fact withhold certain information from the watchers. These things being the case, you wonder how anyone can take the, the position that Paul's talking about human or earthly rulers in this passage. Well, in doing the research for this uh, message, 
I did a lot of reading from those who maintain the human ruler's view. Their main argument seems to be that, apart from Satan entering Judas to betray Yeshua and set the whole process in motion, there doesn't seem to be much evidence that supernatural powers were involved in the course of the crucifixion. In other words, they would argue, you know, read the Gospels, read the narratives. Do you see a lot of demonic activity in conjunction with the crucifixion? Now, apart from pointing out that this is an argument from silence, which is a really bad way to make your point, I would answer it by calling your attention to Psalm 22 and 68. Psalm 22 is another psalm, like so many others, that wasn't originally messianic in focus. In the, pre-Christian, in the pre-Christian era, it was generally understood in terms of David's early life as a shepherd. With our 2020 New Testament hindsight, this seems shocking. The parallels between the Passion narratives and in the Gospels and the psalm are almost impossible to miss. When you look at Psalm 22 after the fact. For example, verse 18 says, they divided my garments and for my clothes they cast lots. We see the fulfillment in Matthew 27, 35. Verses 7 and 17, all see me. They open wide their lips. They shake their head. They gaze. They look at me. This is filled in Matthew 27, 39 and 41. Verse 1 of Psalm 22 opens with the very words, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Verses 14 and 16, I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up. My tongue cleaves to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of the earth. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. You read this today, 2,000 years after the crucifixion, and you're thinking, this is so obvious. How could they have missed it? Again, they missed it because this wasn't the Messiah they were looking for. Today, we understand this psalm, originally non-Messianic, as another encrypted prophecy about Christ. And it completely dispels the idea that supernatural powers weren't heavily involved in the crucifixion. In the midst of this psalm, we read these words in verses 11 and 12. Be not far from me, for trouble is near. There is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. The place name, Bashan, is a loaded theological term. In Psalm 68.15, Bashan is called the mountain of God, or to be more accurate, the mountain of Elohim. Quite literally, the mountain of of the gods. Bashan was, for all intents and purposes, ground zero in terms of Old Testament demonic geography. It's associated with Mount Hermon, the place where, according to Enoch, the fallen watchers chose to launch their rebellion against Yahweh. And Bashan was also part of Baal's territory. And Baal himself was represented as a bull. So the phrase, Bulls of Bashan is about more than merely wild animals that may have at one time surrounded the young shepherd David. And 
There were no literal bulls at the foot of the cross when Yeshua was crucified. There's obviously something more going on here. But what? What does all of this mean? What all of this means is this. And I can't do any better than to quote Heiser again because he, he, just, he just nails it. The implication is that Jesus, at the moment of agony and death, was surrounded by the bulls of Bashan, demonic Elohim who had been the foes of Yahweh for thousands of years. So, it's just not true that there isn't much evidence that supernatural powers weren't involved in the crucifixion. On the contrary, there's strong evidence. You just need to know where and how to look for it. These bulls of Bashan, these demonic Elohim, these ancient foes of Yahweh, were Paul's rulers of this age and Enoch's destroying spirits and watchers, who, if they had known the plan, would not have crucified the Lord of glory. They thought they were spelling his doom. Instead, the crucifixion of the Lord of glory meant they were spelling their own doom. They were there at Calvary because Yahweh himself brought them there. It was a ruse. It was a trap. And they fell for it. Psalm 68 talks about the mountain of Bashan, the mountain of the Elohim or the gods, looking with envy upon the mountain that Yahweh had chosen. And then Psalm 68 goes on to say of Yahweh's servant, you ascended on high, leading a host of captives. Now, in the pre-Christian era, these words in Psalm 68 were understood in terms of either Moses' ascent to Sinai, David's ascent to the throne, or just generally some past victory of Yahweh. Today, we know from Ephesians 4 that this psalm is speaking about Yeshua and his victory on the cross. With this in mind, then, Psalm 68 goes on to tell us that it was Yahweh himself who brought these enemies back from Bashan so that his foot may shatter them. In other words, he lured these bulls of Bashan, these demonic Elohim, as Heiser calls them, to the foot of the cross where they thought they would shatter Yeshua. Instead, he shattered them. In short, they played right into his hand and they never saw it coming. Why didn't they see it coming? Because Yahweh gave no indication that these Psalms were talking about more than just Moses, more than just David, more than just some past victories of Yahweh. He purposely withheld this information. And this shouldn't surprise us at all. You know, think about Moses, who was specifically instructed by God you know, to tell Pharaoh, look, we just want to go on a three days journey into the wilderness to sacrifice. That's all. That's all we want to do. Folks, they weren't planning on coming back. Moses isn't giving Pharaoh the whole story. And it's God himself who's instructing Moses to withhold information. Another example is Samuel. Uh, he's going to Bethlehem to anoint David as king. And Samuel, Samuel says, you know, Lord, I can't do this. When Saul finds out, he's going to kill me. So what does Yahweh do? He instructs Samuel to mislead others 
by creating the false impression that he was only going to offer sacrifices when in fact the real reason, the real purpose was to anoint the king-elect of Israel. So it's not at all unusual for God to withhold information from his enemies. In two key parts of his plan, the Exodus event and the anointing of David as king, he did not show his hand. Should we expect the cross would be any different? To quote Heiser again, the cross was the catalyst to God's plan for redeeming humanity and reclaiming the nations. It couldn't be emblazoned across the Old Testament in transparent terms. It had to be expressed in sophisticated and cryptic ways to ensure the powers of darkness would be misled. And misled they were. I also wanted to point out that this methodology is actually quite typical of what can be called resistance literature. This type of literature is characterized as cunning or deceptive as a result of its statements being phrased in the form of disguised expressions. And make no mistake about it, Yahweh and his prophets were leading a resistance movement, the greatest resistance movement in history, a resistance movement against the gods allotted to every other nation on earth. And the Old Testament, the Tanakh, is the greatest example of resistance literature in history. The plan was literally hidden in plain sight, and the powers of darkness missed it completely. In his, um, in his excellent book, Tyrant, the Rise of the Beast, Brian Gadawa captures what must have been going through the heads of the powers of darkness after their defeat at Calvary. Gadawa writes, The dark lord, Apollon, roamed unseen through the massive throngs of citizens filling the streets of the city. His city. Well, not entirely. Ever since the Nazarene accomplished his coup d'etat a generation ago. The Nazarene had outfoxed him and achieved atonements for sins through his death, resurrection, and ascension to the right hand of Yahweh. Apollon still boiled in anger over his failure to figure out the plan and stop the Messiah. Ever since Eden, he had been at war with the seed of Eve. From Enoch to Noah to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all the way to the son of David. How could he have missed it? Now, this is from book one of Brian's Chronicles of the Apocalypse series. And I think it's quite fitting that he opens the book with a dark lord roaming the streets, frustrated about and agonizing over the fact that Yahweh completely pulled the wool over his eyes. This scene in Brian's book takes place at the beginning of the events of the book of Revelation as they unfold it. And I believe just as the powers of darkness were duped when it came to the first part of Yahweh's plan, the cross, so too the Lord would completely outsmart them with regard to the second part of the plan, the parousia. I think this is especially the case in what can be called the pilgrimage prophecies. These prophecies where you know the nations of the world make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem in the last days. Um, consider, for example, this portion of the Old Testament's 
prophecy regarding the new heavens and the new earth. The time is coming to gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and see my glory. I will set a sign among them and send survivors from the nations, and they will declare my glory among the nations. Then they shall bring all your brethren from all nations as a grain offering to the Lord, in horses, in chariots, on mules, and camels, to my holy mountain, Jerusalem, says the Lord. Just as the sons of Israel bring their grain offering and a clean vessel to the house of the Lord, I will also take some of them for priests and Levites, says the Lord. For just as the new heavens and new earth which I make will endure before me, so your offering will, offspring will endure before me. And it shall be from new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath. All mankind will come and bow down before me says the Lord. Now, when we read an Old Testament passage like this, with 2020 New Testament hindsight, we understand certain things. For example, the doctrine of the priesthood of all believers. That's pretty basic and fundamental Protestantism. You know, there are no Levites anymore. We also understand from Paul in Colossians chapter 2 that the new moons and Sabbaths were merely types and shadows of things to come. But the substance is in Christ. So, we're going to look at an Old Testament passage like this, and we're going to understand it now, not in terms of the Old Testament types and shadows, but in terms of the New Testament realities these things typify. And there isn't anything wrong with this. This is how we should look at these things. Otherwise, you're going to end up with the dispensational idea that all of these old covenant practices, the rituals, the sacrifices, the priesthood, etc., are going to someday be restored. Now, I have many dispensational friends who I love truly in the Lord, but this idea is just an affront to the finished work of Christ, and there's no other way to say it. Another thing we're going to understand with our 2020 New Testament hindsight, and this is big, is that there were two Jerusalems. In Galatians, Paul speaks of the present Jerusalem, which represented slavery, and the Jerusalem above, which was free. When he says present Jerusalem, he meant the Jerusalem that was present and standing as he wrote the letter to the Galatians. Present and standing in the first century. He tells the Galatians that they were children not of that earthly physical Jerusalem, but of the heavenly spiritual Jerusalem. The writer to the Hebrews says the same thing, telling the Christians they have come near to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Excuse me. When we read the New Testament back into the Old, it's pretty easy to look at a passage like this one in Isaiah and understand it's talking about the spiritual, heavenly Jerusalem. But not so easy if you didn't have the Old Testament. In the context of this passage, Yahweh says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. I create Jerusalem for rejoicing. I will also rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. While the passage does speak in terms of a renewal or recreation of Jerusalem, 
an ancient reader is going to think that God is planning on doing something new and different with the present physical earthly city of Jerusalem. Again, we know from the books of Galatians and Hebrews that this isn't what Isaiah is talking about. But the ancient Israelites didn't have the books of Galatians and Hebrews. Isaiah couches the prophecy in terms of physical, earthly language. So, pretend you don't have Galatians. Pretend you've never read the book of Hebrews. What conclusions would you come to regarding this new Jerusalem? Well, it sounds like people from all over the world are physically coming to earthly Jerusalem. It sounds like grain offerings are going to continue right into the new age. It sounds like the Levitical priesthood continues right into the new heavens and new earth. And it sounds like we're going to continue to observe new moons and Sabbaths. It sounds like whatever new thing Yahweh is going to do when He finally reclaims the peoples of the world, it will center on physical, earthly Jerusalem with the rituals and practices of the Old Covenant continuing just as they always had been in the past. And I would maintain this is exactly what Yahweh wanted the false gods and powers of darkness to think. And they fell for it. Hook, line, and sinker. So, why is the language of, the old, of these Old Testament prophecies couched in such physical, earthly terminology? Why wait until the New Testament to reveal that all of these things were merely types and shadows that were going to be replaced by a greater reality? Why conceal it in the Old Testament? Well, think about it. Being a member of the heavenly Jerusalem, the true Jerusalem, would no longer be a matter of physical location. It's not tied to geography anymore. The second you get saved or believe, you become a member of the heavenly Jerusalem, the true Jerusalem, the Jerusalem from above. This being the case, the earthly Jerusalem, the old Jerusalem, had to be destroyed. So it could become evident that the heavenly Jerusalem was now in fact a reality for all peoples everywhere. During the transition period, A.D. 30 to A.D. 70, Yeshua had inaugurated the New Covenant, Luke 22. But Hebrews 8 informs us that while the Old Covenant was becoming obsolete and growing old, it had not yet vanished or disappeared. It needed to vanish. It needed to disappear. The temple needed to be destroyed. And the powers of darkness through the Roman armies would be the very vessels God would use to accomplish His purpose. Just like the cross, they thought they were foiling His plan when, in reality, they were playing right into His hand. And Yahweh was simply not going to give that type of information to His enemies. So, what's He doing in passages like this? He's baiting the enemy. And guess what? They took the bait. Yahweh lured them into His own territory, used them to accomplish His own purposes, and then annihilated them. Thus, 
freeing all people everywhere from their enslavement to false gods and enabling them to come to the true and living God with 24-7 open access. Anyone and everyone from any nation on earth can now become citizens of the new Jerusalem, the spiritual Jerusalem, the Jerusalem from above. So I would suggest that the physical earthly language of the pilgrimage passages and so many other Old Testament prophecies should be understood as a ruse to keep the powers of the dark keep the powers of darkness in the dark and entice them to destroy the epicenter of the entire old covenant system otherwise you're left with things like the dispensational idea that the old testament sacrifices and rituals will be reinstituted after the return of Christ and i mean this this just goes against the grain of the whole tenor of the new testament which informs us you know clearly and unequivocally, that these things were merely types and shadows. The substance is in Christ. None of this is readily apparent from the pages of the Old Testament. And I would argue that it was intended to be that way. From the day Yeshua's parents took him from Egypt to escape Herod, to his death on the cross, all the way to his parousia, the Old Testament prophecies about these events were phrased in such a way as to mislead and misdirect the powers of darkness. The message was encrypted, veiled, and nuanced. The Old Testament prophets were the greatest authors of resistance literature in the history of mankind. And Christ's accomplishments from A.D. 30 to A.D. 70 were the greatest victories in the greatest war that was ever fought. From the cross to the parousia, Christ's enemies are being made a footstool under his feet. At the parousia, he steps on that footstool and crushes it. And right up until the end, the powers of darkness are clueless as to how he's going to do it. And this, I would maintain, is precisely how Yahweh designed it to be. Um, I'm going to close with that. I don't know who should come up here now. David? Oh, um, well, you know what? Is that... Well, okay. <laughs> the next slide is questions, but I tell you what, I like... I, I like something Jeff told me. And he has his hand up, but remember what you told me. Everything I know on this subject, I just told you, so I don't know if I can answer any more questions. But you can answer this question. Okay. Are you familiar with the writing, the Gospel of Nicodemus, one of those other extra-biblical writings? Um, probably vaguely, but okay, no, no, yeah. Couldn't help but think about it because of your message. I should have mentioned it, knowing where you're going with this. Within it, there's a narrative of Satan going down to the prince of the souls and Hades. Oh, and bragging about how I overcame the stupid Nazarene, you know, his, who thought he was going to do this, and he was hurting my people and taking back the possessed and healing people that I had made blind. And he's telling the prince of the souls of Hades this, and the prince said, is this the same guy that took Lazarus from me? 
And he's like, yeah, he goes, do not bring him down here. <laughs> he will take all of my people from the, all of my dead people he will take from my power. And then all of a sudden, bright lights, thunder, the doors and gates start to open. And it's just a, a great story about how Satan thought, I conquered him. And the prince of death was like, that is do not do that. Good. I, if I would have known about yeah, that, I would have used it. That was a great little right, story. right after the Petra song. That's yeah. great. Yeah. yeah. Um, I agree with your message. I, that's good. <laughs> well, stop right there. Yeah. Okay. That's a great question. Anyone else? Yeah. My agreement doesn't mean a hill beans to anyone on the planet. Um, <laughs> Like they really say, it's a nickel overrated. So, um, and I understood it. And I, I that's good too. I, I, underst I understand it. But my question is, and this comes from my ignorance of the uh, divine council and the other gods. Was there they are they were they so close in power that Yahweh had to deceive them and he couldn't just Hold them over or something? Well, I'm not sure. You know, I look at it like that. I um, one of my friends sort of brought this up when. Oh, first of all, I do not believe they were uh, close to Yahweh in power at all. Just because they're called Elohim just means they were residents of the spiritual world. But Yahweh possesses a unique set of attributes that sets him far apart from the rest. Um. But they're also, I believe, having said that, I believe they are a step up from us as far as I believe they possess superior intelligence to us. Uh, plus, they would have had thousands of years to figure out the plan, so that's why I believe it was pretty veiled and cryptic. And then another thing, I don't believe God had to do it that way, but he, he doesn't have to do anything, but he chooses... It, he chooses to do things certain ways. It's like, I don't know if you guys are familiar with Avengers, but, you know, he's not Thanos where he snaps his fingers and just, you know, his will is accomplished. He is powerful enough, I believe, to do whatever he wants to, however he wants to, but he chooses to do things this way. So hopefully that sort of makes sense. <laughs> um, what's that? Yeah, he kind of does things, you know, works with us, um, at yeah. The question: Why? How did they miss all this in the Old Testament? Yeah, yeah. I honestly believe it was. There, there's just there's just a score scores of other passages, you know, that I could have brought up, but you have to, you, you know, you have to trim it down. But just scores of other passages that, and I just encourage everyone to do this. When you're reading the New Testament and you come across, oh, they're quoting the Old Testament, just go back and check out the original context. Sometimes it makes sense. Sometimes you're wondering, you know, what in the world are they thinking? And then the next logical question is, why? Yeah. And I believe the whole idea of the veiled cryptic message explains why. I, I, I just really do. I think that's the only way to explain it. What? Oh, <laughs> anyone... Anyone can have my phone number. I'm, you can ask my wife. I, uh, I love being on my phone and I love texting people. She'll attest to that. 
but I just don't always have time Monday through Friday to do that. But but hit me on the weekend, sure. <laughs> so, <laughs> thank you very much. Thanks, everybody. It was just uh, it was absolutely great to be here, and. Um, Thanks, David, for the invite. Great job, man. Appreciate that. Hopefully, that helps you all understand how much more we have to learn. You know, that's what it does to me. It's like this Bible is so deep, so involved that we're not going to get to the point where we're like, oh, we got it figured out. We're bored now. No, we keep learning, we keep growing, and that was that was a great presentation. Bob did a great job of showing, you know, how those passages and dispensationalism, you know, they take it (laughs) all literal. All right, no, well. He meant to fool people and still is fooling people today. (laughs) Yeah, they're still...